Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked to the middle of Canto 7 of Purgatorio. Again, I keep saying this, I can't believe how far we've actually come, but we are here. We have met the Provençal poet, or I should say the Italian poet who wrote in Provençal, Sordello. We have learned that he is sitting apart like a crouching lion, but suddenly he doesn't seem so forbidding at all. And Virgil has launched into an explanation of who he and the pilgrim are, or really who he is, and he has seemed to indicate that this journey is his in some way, which uh, maybe it is, but we can talk about that more as we go forward in this passage. This is my English translation, rough English translation of the medieval Florentine. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. If you want to go out there and look at it, you can read along, you can print it off, or you can continue the conversation with me about this episode, which would be terrific. This episode actually is picking up right where we left off. In fact, I dropped Virgil in the middle of his speech in the last episode. He had said how he was damned for no fault of his own, not for what he did, but for what he didn't do, as he put it. And then he talked about how he didn't know and the people he was around in limbo didn't know the three theological virtues, love, hope, and and faith, but knew the four cardinal virtues and that they followed those virtues without having the full revelation. That's when we dropped Virgil. And when we pick it up in this passage, he's going to still be speaking. So Purgatorio 7, lines 37 through 63. But if you know and are able to point the way to us, then we can more quickly get to the spot where purgatory has its true beginning. Sordello replied, We're not set into a fixed place here. I'm allowed to go up and move around as far as it's possible. I'll be a guide for you. But see now how the day is fading. It's not possible for us to ascend by night. We should therefore think about a decent place to settle in. There are some souls set apart over there to the right. If you permit me, I'll lead you to them. You'll even find some delight in getting to know who they are. How can that be, came Virgil's response. If someone wanted to climb by night, would someone else stop him? Or would he truly not be able to go on? Good Sordello drew a line on the ground with his finger and said, Check it out. You can't even get across a line like this once the sun goes down. Not because something blocks you from doing so, just because of the dark of night in and of itself, which enchains the will in sheer inability. At nighttime, one can go back down and wander around without any purpose on the slope for as long as the horizon locks out the daylight. At that, with an astonished look, Virgil, my lord, said, Lead us then to the spot where you say we can find some delight as we settle in for some rest. 
as I was reading that, I was just noting in my head how many times questions of possibility come up, questions of empowerment, questions of permission. It's just rife in this passage. It's very curious and it's very important actually sitting right here. How far does your capability extend? How far does your power take you? I want to talk a little about that, but we want to talk that through actually by, as always, looking at that passage itself. And we're going to run straight through the passage. And then at the end, I've got two big interpretive points I want to talk about. So let us give ourselves the permission to get moving. The passage starts out, but if you know, as Virgil prompts and are able, there's more questions of capability to point the way to us, then we can more quickly get to the spot where purgatory has its true beginning. This is an interesting moment for several reasons. One, we are wrapping here back to Balakwa. Remember in Purgatorio 4, we meet the lazy soul Balakwa. Balakwa says, what's the use of going up when there's an angel sitting up there at the gate? Well, here we have a further elucidation of that, and it brings up a couple questions, a couple interesting ideas. How does Virgil know this isn't purgatory. Virgil's never been here. So is he picking up on what Balakwa said back in Purgatorio 4? Or does Virgil somehow intuitively know it? This is what I can actually say. This is a moment in which Purgatorio is starting to wrap back on itself. This reference further elucidates Balakwa's statement about an angel sitting at the gate. Now we really do know we're not in purgatory proper. And so the poem is starting to wrap on itself. And that is a hallmark of really fine narrative. It wraps back on itself so that it closes the circle of its world. This will become important later in this episode of the podcast. It closes the circle of its world in order to hold a narrative storytelling space. And we can see Purgatorio starting to do that, to starting to wrap back on itself in ways that Inferno also wrapped back on itself. And this brings us to a question about a poem in process. I've talked about this endlessly, but let me just again say this. The notion that the poem comedy is somehow in process partially, or that it is partially being thought out as it is written, doesn't mean that Dante doesn't know where he's headed, or that he can't make astute plays throughout the poem. In fact, he can and he does know where he's headed. He probably has a lot of this actually mapped out in his head. But at the same time, we would also have to say that the poem is developmental. It is kind of uh, working out its space underneath us, which brings us, of course, back to Cato. Cato is sitting underneath us. He's sitting underneath much, especially of the early cantos of Purgatory. But this is one of those moments, again, where we can see that even though the ironic fracture of Cato is there, Purgatorio is wrapping in on itself to form a holistic world that refers 
back to itself, and thus it's starting to define the limits of its narrative. That is very important for a successful and beautifully crafted literary work, and it has nothing to do with the notion that the poem is in process or is developmental. Dante most likely knows where he's headed because he's dropping hints before we get there all along, and in fact, has been dropping hints about Purgatorio even back in Inferno when Ulysses spots the mountain. Moving on in the passage, Sordello answers Virgil now and says, we're not set in a fixed place here. I really want to talk about this. I'm allowed to go up and move around as far as it's possible. I'll be a guide for you. Now, this is the first moment in which we really do know that Sordello is the second guide of comedy. He is admittedly a minor guide. Notice the trajectory. I'm allowed to go up. Apparently, the movement on purgatory is always up. You, as we will see in this passage, can go down, but you don't want to go down. You want to always be moving up toward the top of the mountain. So we know that Sardello now is allowed to move around, which really makes it odd. We know he's not caught like Manfred with X number of years based on X number of years of being excommunicated. We know that he doesn't have to stick out here for necessarily any set moment of time, but we don't know why he doesn't just go on up and move through the gate. This remains a mystery. Why is Sordello stuck here if he's allowed to go up? Well, that I can't answer, but I can say something about we're not set in a fixed place here, his first line of his response. Since 1340 and the commentary of Dante's own son, Pietro, every commentator links this line, we're not set into a fixed place here, with Aeneid Book 6. And I want to read this to you. Just let me have this. It's a little, uh, what do I want to say, a little tedious to read Aeneid in this podcast, but let me read it to you because it's really important to see it. Let me set up the passage just a moment. Uh, the Sibyl and Aeneas are in the afterlife in book six, they come across Musaeus, a heroic soul. And the Sibyl asks Musaeus where Anchises is. Of course, Aeneas is trying to find Anchises because, of course, he's trying to find his father. This is how it all goes down in the Aeneid. I'm in the translation by Sarah Rudin into the English. You can hear me open the book, probably. And <laughs> I'm at about line six. Well, I am at line. 666 in the translation. I'm going to move forward and just let you hear the whole story. The Sibyl addressed Musaeus chiefly. All that huge crowd gathered up. He towered massive shoulder in the center. Tell me, you happy souls, and you, great singer, where we can find Anchises, in which quarter? For we have sailed through the underworld's wide waters. With a few words, the hero answered her, we have no houses here. That's the line. That's no fixed place. We have no houses here. Our homes are dim woods. Stream banks are couches. Verdant flowing meadows are settlements. But if you speak your heart's wish, come up this easy path to climb the ridge. He stepped ahead and showed the shining plains that stretched below. 
but soon they left the high ground. Father Anchises, in a low green valley, devotedly surveyed the souls confined there before emerging to the light. He happened now to be tallying his dear descendants, lives, destinies, achievements, characters, and when he saw Aeneas making toward him over the grass, he stretched his hands out, blissful. The tears poured down his cheeks, and he exclaimed, You've come at last. Love would win out, I knew, on this hard road. And can I see your face, my child? Hear your beloved voice and answer, Really, I counted on this, calculated the time, and anxious hope could not deceive me. Note that Musaeus is a heroic singer. Note that they climb up a little bit and enter what we now know are the Elysian fields. Note that this is a place of verdant grass and meadows. It's beautiful. And this seems to be where those good souls find themselves in the afterlife. And there are distinct reunions here. Keep all that in your head for what lies ahead of us in Purgatorio 7. Now we're going to move along in this passage. Sertelo continues, but see now how the day is fading. It's not possible for us to ascend by night. We should therefore think about a decent place to settle in. There's some souls set apart over there to the right. Do you hear the links to the Aeneid? If you permit me, I'll lead you to them. You'll even find some delight in getting to know who they are. There's a couple ways that this is wild. One is that Sertelo is using the singular form of of you, which means he's talking solely to Virgil. Secondly, he's using the familiar form of you to Virgil. If you remember in the last episode, he bowed down, bent his forehead down, clasped Virgil as an inferior, and yet he's using the familiar you. So they are on a common plane together, even if Sordelo is finding himself bent down in front of Virgil. There are a couple ways you can look at that. You can either say, well, this has to do with uh, Sordelo is bending down and honoring the greater poet Virgil, but he can use the familiar because he is redeemed and Virgil is damned. Or you could say the poets are being put in league with each other. Of course, you know, I tend to lean in in that direction, that Sordelo and Virgil have a connection that allows Sordelo to use the familiar even when he sees Virgil as a superior. A couple other things here. Notice that the souls are set to the right. Remember all that movement to the left in Inferno? To the right here. We talked all about this, the reverse directionality, the way the entire journey, with a couple exceptions in Inferno, is actually moving to the right because of the glow. We talked through this endlessly in Inferno, but notice now that on Purgatorio, we are moving to the right. This is the directionality that is preferred. Sorry, left-handed people, but in the Middle Ages, left-handed people were sinister. The left was sinister. I don't think this. This is the iconography of the time. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But here they're moving to the right, and to the right lies delight. 
So Dela says she'll even find some delight in getting to know who they are. Dileto. I'm just going to drop that dileto right there, delight. We're going to come back to it at the end of the passage. Let's move on to Virgil's rather confused questions. Virgil begins, how can that be? And I just want to say one thing. This phrase, how can that be, is a little bit of a misdirection because you might think that Virgil is saying, how can it be that I'll find delight? Or how can it be that there are some souls over there to the right gathered together? But it's not. Virgil's question at first, just based on context, might be about some of those things. Instead, that how can that be is about the question of whether you can move at night. I find it interesting that Dante throws a little misdirection into the text. It puts us on an uncertain footing in the same way that the pilgrim must be in the afterlife who's never been here, and perhaps even how Virgil is having never been here. Now, Virgil seems much more certain, but again, the poem throws the reader into just a momentary misdirection, and then we know what Virgil is actually talking about because he says, if someone wanted to climb by night, would someone else stop him? Or would he truly not be able to go on more about what you're capable of doing and incapable of doing? Good Sordello drew a line on the ground with his finger and said, check it out. You can't even get across a line like this once the sun goes down. Uh, I want to talk about this in just a second. We'll come back to it. Not because something blocks you from doing so, Sordello says, just because of the dark of night in and of itself, which enchains the will in sheer inability, non poder. Dante is using a very strange word here, to not be able to. If you know French, he's using something like non pouvoir, which makes no sense, as if that's a verb. But he's using this weird construction to indicate inability, and it really heightens the question of ability and inability. And it shows us that there is a limit on the will. You can't move at night. This is interesting because what is being said here is that the will needs light. Without light, you're not capable of making any forward advance. (laughs) Surely, I don't have to draw out the implications of that, both in a Christian context, without light, without revelation, and just in a human context, without any ability to know or see or any understanding, you can't move up. You can, we find out, move down. But why would you want to? There is clearly an allegorical intent going on here. Dante is highlighting it with this strange word, non poder. Let's go back and talk about that line on the ground with his finger. When Sordello draws that line in the dirt and says, you know, you can't get across it, most critics point this to a New Testament passage. In John 8, Jesus leans down and draws in the sand when the woman is caught in adultery. When he does this, he looks at the various judicial leaders who have caught the woman in adultery, and Jesus says, The one who is without sin, 
cast the first stone. Without giving away everything, we have read this through once before, we are coming into a valley with a bunch of political and military leaders who neglected their Christian duties while at the same time doing the good thing. Whatever they did was good, but they were so caught up in political machinations and in warfare and the political landscape that it kept them from, uh, what do I want to say, refining their souls. So I think it's interesting that right before we get to that moment, after that huge invective about Italian strife, we basically have perhaps a reference to whoever is without sin casts the first stone. Dante was just throwing a lot of stones at the end of Canto 7. And now we get this, which is a warning not to judge too quickly. I like that John 8 reference because I think it really sets up an ironic tonality here and it helps us move back and forth from a position of prophetic condemnation to, let's say, a more compassionate stance to those who may not have been able, you see where I'm going, right, may not have been able able to refine their souls to the glory of God, but rather had to or were coerced into or roped into or confined by the political situation in which they lived. Be careful who you judge, despite the fact that Dante just engaged in a vitriolic prophetic condemnation of Italy. So Taylor goes on and says, at nighttime, one can go back down and wander around with any purpose on the slope as long as the horizon locks out the daylight. Now, the question here is, why would you want to? And Robert Hollander brings this up, that apparently you can go lower on the slope at any time at night. But since the directionality of purgatory is up, why would you want to go down? So basically, you just have to stand where you are once the sun's gone, because otherwise, again, the only way you're free to move is down. That sounds good from a Hollander, and I like it. It makes a nice, neat sense. I'm not sure the passage is all that neat. It leaves open the door to an ironic strangeness. That is, at night, you're capable of going down, and I think that might elucidate that allegory a bit more. In the light, you can move up, but when there is no light, all you can do, you're still free to move, but all you can do is move down. It's not that you're stationary. It's that you will yourself to be stationary in the dark. Maybe this is a really interesting point about the allegory. That is, when the light is not clear, don't just go back or <laughs> go back to the past. Oh, there's a question for you, right? Don't just go back or be nostalgic or go into retrograde. Instead, just stand there and wait because the light will come. Maybe that's a life lesson too. I know this isn't a podcast about life lessons from Dante, but maybe that's a moment that we all need to sit and think about for a minute. When it is dark and we're not sure what to do, Maybe there is a time to just stand still, for we might be guilty then 
of moving back down, or we might feel the only way is to back up when, in fact, we should be waiting for the return of the light. At that, with an astonished look, Virgil, my lord, said, now notice my lord, so the poet still wants us to know that Virgil is the main guide here. That really loaded phrase, my lord, my feudal lord, said, lead us then to the spot where you say we can find some delight, there's that word again, diletto, as we settle in for some rest. Some critics believe that the delight here for Virgil would be to see who's really in the Elysian fields, since Virgil's poem, the Aeneid, anticipates the Elysian fields as part of the afterlife. Virgil is now curious to know who's really there. That seems like a good explanation, but I don't know. It also seems a little airtight, and it seems a little turgid to me, to use an old word from when I was a lit prof. Instead, maybe Virgil is learning about the forward momentum of desire throughout comedy in the way that the pilgrim is. And here's the tragedy. The pilgrim is learning that diletto, delight, desire, is in fact the fundamental mechanism of forward motivation in comedy. And maybe Virgil is learning this too. The tragedy is that it does Virgil no good. Even if Virgil is learning that, it does the damned soul no good. Diletto is, of course, the prime motivation across comedy, and it is, in fact, the prime node of Dante's, and I use a very modern word here, psychology. Diletto is, in the end, what directs the will, desire, pleasure. We will later learn in Purgatorio that pleasure forms the self and that it is the prime base, almost, uh, what do we say, genesis motivation of the soul itself. And we see that beginning to be more fully explored here, to find how to move toward that which delights you. The delight can be, of course, bad. In Dante's theology, you have to correct your delight towards something right. But let's face it, even if we aren't Christians, even if you aren't, and I'm not, but even if you aren't, that still is the truth. Just because you want something to happen doesn't make it right. You have to figure out how your desires are in fact right and how you can get them to the place where they lead you to the good rather than just to your own personal satisfaction. But still, the way you find the good is through diletto, is through desire, through delight. And we can push this back to a Christian context and say, that desire or delight is what leads you ultimately to God. That is Dante's point. That is a really intriguing point because it has a very modern feel to it, and yet we're talking a very strictly Christian rubric. We always have to think that through in order to understand comedy. Finally, at the end of this episode, I want to say something about Cato. I brought him up in the beginning. I've talked about him a lot in recent episodes. I talked about how he underlies a lot of the early bits of purgatory. I've been thinking a lot about Cato and the ironic stance of this saved virtuous pagan. 
And I think in the end, this comes back to our old thesis. Love moves the fence. Dante has a great love for the classical world. In the end, while he puts Virgil as a guide, he still damns Virgil. He's still trying to figure out, oh, God, where's my fence? My fence means that Virgil's outside my fence. He's not actually in this pasture that I'm working in. He's running along outside of it. I don't really like that, but I can't help it. It's what my theology teaches me. And then we get to Cato, and there's a way in which suddenly the fence moves. The tragedy is that the fence could now incorporate Virgil, but it doesn't. Dante is sticking consistently with what he thinks. There's no point in which Virgil is suddenly saved in comedy. This is the truth of the matter, and this is what I think that you and I deal with all the time. Love does indeed move the fence. Let's say, for example, we don't think hmm, certain people are worth having dinner with or even talking to, or we don't think that certain people's actions are moral, and then we come to a relationship with them, and love moves the fence, and we start to you know, try to renegotiate our space. All right, let me give you a really personal example. This, Sorry, I don't mean to be totally personal, but let me give you one. Bruce and I, my husband and I, have a friend who has a very different politics from the two of us. This friend is very, very right-wing. I don't mean to be this personal, but just let me have it for a minute. This friend is very, very right-wing, and it's very troubling to both of us some of the things she says. But also, and this is also the truth, she loves us. She takes care of us. She very much considers us almost as if we are stepchildren. I mean, she refers to us sometimes almost as her kids. She's quite a bit older than we are, uh, maybe 20, 25 years older than we are. We have a very tender relationship with her. And sometimes it's really hard to be around her because of her politics when she starts spewing them out at the dinner table, particularly after a couple glasses of wine. But in the end, I know that love moves the fence, and I know that how I've roped up my world ideologically and politically, I've got to move the fence to include her. And here's the truth. When I move the fence, there are endless cracks. There are endless moments in which... Yikes, the posts of the fence lean. The fence doesn't really make a straight line anymore. I'm irritated, and yet at the same time, I'm trying to move my fence. What I'm trying to say is that it sounds great. Love moves the fence, but doing so comes at a cost. And the cost here, here, let's go back to comedy, is Cato. The cost is it causes an ironic fracture under a very serious Christian poem. It causes that fracture line to run right through this middle canticle of comedy, Purgatorio. And this fracture is going to trouble us throughout Purgatorio. I know I've said that this is going to be bothersome in anti-Purgatory, the, the parts of Purgatory before the main gate. True. But just wait till we get to the middle of Purgatorio and the big speeches. Love moving the fence will cause the poet to have all sorts of problems 
about how the soul actually gets redeemed, problems that are trying to make sense of the Cato problem implicitly, and trying to figure out now that I've moved the fence, where exactly do those posts lie? Because I'm no longer quite sure they're secure, and I've got to figure out how big my pasture now is. Well, that is very metaphoric speech, but trust me, it lies ahead of us in Purgatorio. I was going to actually spend some time rereading these passages that we've been through, but I'm not going to because the passage has really, really eaten up a lot of space on this episode. So I'm just going to save it. Maybe in the next episode, maybe I'll come back and read more. We're about to enter a really beautiful space in Purgatorio, one of the first truly beautiful moments in comedy, even more so than Limbo, for sure. So maybe I'll save it for that moment. Otherwise, what you can do is you can subscribe to this podcast. You can rate it. You can like it. You can even give it a review in whatever language and on whatever national platform you are listening to this podcast on. I would most appreciate that. Come back because really the poem is about to make a dramatic swerve toward these souls who are sitting around on the right, and things are going to change dramatically, and don't let that passage of the Aeneid fall out of your head once we get there. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I'll see you on the journey ahead.